0: Okay, church, if you could please open up to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 14. 1 Corinthians, chapter 14. We're continuing in our study of this letter written by Paul to the church in Corinth. And as you turn there, I want to give a real quick illustration that kind of serves up our main idea. Maybe I'll give you the main idea first so you can record that while I give the illustration for it. Here's the main idea. The church is meant to echo... And exemplify the truth of the gospel and the effects of the gospel. I know it's a little bit lengthier this morning. The church is meant to echo and exemplify the truth of the gospel and the effects of the gospel. That is to say, both speaking and declaring the gospel and then living out and demonstrating what the gospel is and then what it does for those who believe. That's our main idea this morning. And the illustration that I want to give is, there's this phrase, I'll believe it when I see it, or I want to see it for myself. We see that in Doubting Thomas in the scriptures when he says, I want to place my finger in the holes before I believe that Jesus has returned. There's something within a lot of us, I'll be honest, that it's within myself that I want to see something. For instance, at home, sometimes I will ask Stacy or one of the kids, hey, will you check and see if this is in a place? Yesterday I needed my screwdriver for something. I told Kristen it's on the coffee table in the kitchen area. And so she went to look for it. And whenever I hear it's not there, my first instinct should be, wife, whom I love, I trust you. Unfortunately, I am not a perfect man. And sometimes I say, mm, I'll, I'll come look. <laughs> and there's a question, well, you don't believe me? Which is a good question. I guess in a sense, in that moment, I don't. I I want to see it for myself because I'm confident it's there. And if I can just look, maybe I'll see something that you didn't see. So we kind of have this mentality when people tell us of things. We think, I'll believe that when I see it. I want to see it for myself. The title of my sermon this morning, I don't share it often, though I do have one every week, is they'll believe it when they see it. We're going to continue in the eighth topic in Paul's letter out of about ten, spiritual gifts in order in the church. And as a reminder, this spans about three chapters, 12 through 14, with the love chapter being right there in the middle, kind of holding that together like glue. So we started chapter 14 last week looking at why and how God gifts the church with spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts, when they are rightly practiced, they build up the church, And they develop an outward focus. They are used in an outward purpose in the church. But the Corinthians were practicing a counterfeit gift, which they kind of brought over from their pagan religious practices. And they mistakenly believed this to be the actual gift of speaking in tongues. So Paul is in a tough situation. He can't just outright say, stop speaking in tongues, because that is an actual gift. The problem is that what they are practicing is not the actual gift though they think it is. So to correct them while he's away, what he does is he explains to them how the actual gift is supposed to function. And if they follow that parameter, then that will ensure that they only ever practice the genuine gift and not the false one. If it's the genuine gift, it will build up the church and it will have an outward focus rather than a selfish inward focus. So now we come to our next part in the same topic Same passage here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 starting in verse 13. I'm going to invite everyone to stand together for the reading of God's holy word just as a physical reminder and posture that this isn't the opinion of some man. This is the word of God. 1 Corinthians 14 starting in verse 13. Therefore one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I pray with my spirit, but I pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, But the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. In the law, it is written. By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together, and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, Will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you who have inspired the words that we just read, We ask that you would now illuminate your word, that it might shine brightly into our hearts, giving us a knowledge of the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, would you deepen our affection for your word, deepen our understanding of your word, that we might love you and know you more fully, and therefore follow you more faithfully. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. Now, as a reminder, as we continue in chapter 14, we are looking at one of the most controversial, misinterpreted, misapplied scriptures, chapters in the whole Bible. And it revolves around this practice called speaking in tongues. It's practiced by many professing Christians today. However, what we see in chapter 14 is is that what many people call speaking in tongues is not actually the biblical gift of speaking in tongues that the Scriptures talk about and exemplify. Well, this is the same issue that Paul is dealing with in Corinth. He hears of this false practice, and it claims to be the real practice. And so he has to handle it sensitively. And what he does is he sets up these guardrails Kind of like when you're going bowling and there's the guardrails for the kids to keep the ball from going too far one way or the other. It will protect the ball and keep it where it needs to be. So Paul puts up these guardrails to keep the Corinthians within a biblical boundary of practice. In the pagan practice of tongues, the speaker would enter into this trance-like state where the mind was bypassed and this speaker... The speaker's spirit would allegedly be communing with these divine spirits. So Paul here in our passage today suggests another guardrail. We see it here in verse 14. It's the mind. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing praise, but I will sing with my mind also in verse 15 there. So in this pagan practice, the mind is bypassed and the speaker has no idea what he is saying and no one else does either. And the Corinthians were beginning to practice this in the church. So Paul gives a guardrail, the mind. He begins in verse 13 here by speaking to the hypothetical tongue speaker. The false practice, not the real gift. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue, who is doing this, should pray that he may interpret. He basically says, if this is you, pray that you might understand what's going on inside of you. Because it's very likely that this believer is a genuine believer. And growing up with this false practice, it's easy to want to fall into that same pattern of acting. Why? Because it's a very emotional practice. So the believer who feels these emotions towards the Lord might be tempted to fall back into that pattern. So Paul says, if this is you, you should pray that you may interpret. He's basically saying, if this is you, pray that you might understand what you're feeling and be able to put it into words. Paul wants the brother or sister to put words to their feelings. To pray that one might interpret is to pray that one might be able to vocalize something in one's own language. That's what it is to interpret. So pray that you might put what you were feeling into words. And then share that with the congregation. And then in verse 14, he explains why. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. If you can't put it into words, your mind is not benefiting from what's happening. So what's implicit here is that that's bad. It's bad that the mind is not fruitful. It's not a good thing for the mind to be unfruitful in exercising spiritual gifts or disciplines. I'm going to read some scriptures for you. Listen to some of the commonality in these scriptures. Jeremiah 17.10 I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Mark 12.30, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. 2 Corinthians 10.5, we destroy every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. 1 John 5.20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Colossians 2, 1-3. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. And for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. And the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I could continue. I think that makes the point well. Christianity is a religion of the mind. Now, it is more than a religion of the mind. But it is not less than a religion of the mind. It is not a religion that requires its adherents to throw reason out the door. It is not a religion that says, have a blind faith in things that make absolutely no sense. It is not a religion that is not grounded in history, philosophy, science. Christianity is a religion of the mind. So then what is this brother who feels this urge to do? Look at verse 15. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. The solution is not stop feeling that way. Ignore it. The solution is use your mind to express your strong feelings in prayer and in song. Pray with your mind. Sing with your mind. If you don't, look at verse 16 here. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? The word outsider here is the Greek word that translates to someone who has no knowledge. It can also translate to someone who is ungifted. They're an outsider. They don't have this gift. You're exercising it, I don't know what you're saying. So if you don't sing and pray with your mind, use your mind, others in the church can't join in with you. Continue reading in verse 17. You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. So you may be on cloud nine, but your brother or sister next to you is not being edified, and that is the whole point of our gathering together and exercising spiritual gifts to begin with. It's that there might be mutual benefit among us as we exercise God's gifts that He's given to us. So this morning, we see two things already in God's Word. Here's the first. The Christian faith is both emotional and rational. It is something that stirs the affections and the mind. It is something that we feel and something that we contemplate and think about and choose to believe. Four different times in chapter 14, Paul refers to the Corinthians as brothers. Even though they're engaging in a false practice, that doesn't mean that they're not believers. That they don't love the Lord Jesus Christ they're simply not mature in their thinking in one or more areas. In the case of tongues, they're allowing their feelings or their experience to trump reason and truth. God does not want us to check our brains out at the door. Paul doesn't want them to do away with feelings or reason. He wants them to have both together. Many charismatics sacrifice reason for the sake of emotionalism. Now to be fair, many evangelicals do the same. We are not exempt from this. There are some who genuinely love the Lord and they are passionate, but their understanding or their theology is weaker or undeveloped. Maybe you can't remember when you were there in your life, but I can remember when I was there in mine. And I still find that I'm growing in my understanding of the Lord. But I look back, especially at my early years as a believer, and I loved the Lord deeply. I was passionate. But that was not met equally by my desire for a knowledge of the truth. And it was reflected in the songs that I chose to sing, in the way that I treated my my study of the Scriptures. There are many who genuinely love the Lord Jesus passionately, but their understanding needs development. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, there's many Baptists, on the other hand, that commit the opposite error. And we sacrifice emotion for the sake of reason. We're so afraid of emotionalism, we see it in some of our charismatic churches, and we're so afraid of that, that we just take the pendulum and just throw it to the complete opposite end of the spectrum. We abandon it completely. The danger here is that once we abandon the heart, our worship is in vain. You can be saying all the right things. You can even believe those things. And your worship be in vain. Listen to Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 through 9. Jesus is quoting the book of Isaiah to the Pharisees to show them how they're making the same mistake. He says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. The truth of God, when it is rightly grasped, stirs our affections for God. While affections for God, when they are rightly cultivated... Crave to know the truth of God. If you love God deeply, you will want to know more about God. You will want to know Him more accurately. And as you grow to know the Lord more accurately, it will stir your affections. If one of the other of those is out of the picture, something is wrong. Your knowledge of God, there are so many people that I've met that dive into this theology and studying and they get so smart and they know so much, but what goes out the door almost it seems is a love for God. That shouldn't happen. The more you know God, the more you know about yourself, the bigger the gulf you realize there is between God's holiness and your state before him. And the only logical conclusion for that awareness is deeper affection for God. How could such a high God love me so much? It's it's unthinkable. I want to know more about that. And that stirs our affections for God. So that's the first observation. The Christian faith is both emotional and rational. Feeling affections for God and seeking the truth of God. Here's the second observation. A healthy church body acts for the good of one another rather than for the benefit of self. A healthy church body acts for the good of one another rather than for the benefit of self. And I want you to see this for yourself in verses 16 and 17 again. He says, Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, How can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? This outsider is not an unbeliever here. Later, Paul uses the word outsider coupled with someone who is not a believer. So this is a believer who does not have this gift. They are an outsider to the speaker. How can this believer be built up? They can't. You may be giving thanks well enough in verse 17, but the other person is not being built up. Paul's rhetorical question here is crucial to understanding his main point. How can anyone say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you are saying? The answer is he can't. He can't know that. And here's the point. He's implying that that is bad when an outsider cannot say amen to what you were saying. In the church, that's the whole point of coming together, is that there might be mutual upbuilding. That's why he reiterates in verse 17 you may be giving thanks. He's almost implying, but that's not good enough. It's not good enough that you came in and you had a spiritual high. Wonderful. What about the dude next to you? What about the young lady next to you? Did you come to church just for yourself? Because you're falling short is what he's implying here. Church is not about me. And it's not about you. It isn't about self. We have this idea that I come to church so that I can have my gas tank filled up. So that I can go out and it's I, 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 me, me, me. Paul does not have an understanding of the church regarding I. It's about we, us, one another. It isn't about receiving or getting something. It's about giving and providing and serving. Now, will these things happen? Will you receive something at church? Absolutely. Hopefully, yes. Will you get something? Yes. But that's not why we gather. We gather, number one, out of obedience to our Lord. A follower of Jesus wants to be obedient. In Hebrews 10, 25, do not forsake the gathering together as is the habit of some. So we first gather out of obedience, but second, we gather to build one another up. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 through 16, as the body works together, each part comes together and the church builds itself up in love, is what Paul says in Ephesians 4, 15 through 16. The hope is that we might collectively be remade into the image of Christ, bringing him honor and glory in our gatherings. Now, the Holy Spirit is the one who ultimately does this work, but he does it through individual Christians who come together and serve one another, not for the benefit of self or to satisfy self, but to build up and edify the church as a whole. This is where the Corinthians were going astray. They had their own desires, and they were competing for attention in the church, and they were wanting to surround themselves with others who, I I like this, and well I like that. And they were turning against one another and hindering one another rather than building one another up. Their desire was for their own satisfaction, and it led them to practice things that weren't biblical. It had a consequence. Now, again, as we continue, verses 18 and 19, Paul is not trying to dissuade the church from speaking in tongues. He's trying to protect the false practice. Speaking in tongues, the biblical gift, this human languages that are not known to the speaker, Paul does not want to dissuade that. So he reiterates and clarifies again. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But then in verse 19 we see the key. Nevertheless, in church... I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So he reiterates the value of the gift by pointing to himself, but isn't it interesting to notice? Paul says that he is happy that he speaks in tongues more than all of them, but we never once in the Scriptures see this. And then outside of this letter to the Corinthians, one of the earliest letters Paul wrote, we don't see the topic come back up again. Why? Probably because of his next statement that we read. In the church, I would rather you speak five words that make sense than 10,000 in a tongue. The word 10,000 is the highest word that they had in the Greek for a number. That's the highest. We have billion, trillion, quadrillion... Uh, quintillion might be officially a word, but eventually we're going we're gonna to come to a word that that's the highest word we have for a number. But the numbers keep going. Well, 10,000 was theirs, and it was the word that we get myriad from. In Revelation, we see that there are myriads upon myriads of those singing praises to God. That's the way of saying there was an infinite number, 10,000 times 10,000. We look at that and we're like, only 10,000? That's what my grocery bill costs. I mean, I don't understand what the big deal is. This is a number that is meant to express inexpressible. I would rather you speak five intelligible words than speak for an hour and a half in a way that no one can understand you. That's Paul's point. To build up the church. And so this is where, starting in verse 20, he calls them together towards sober thinking. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. He's saying if you were going to be childish, let it be that you were pure in your understanding and you did something wrong, but it was innocent-ish. I don't know if you could ever say fully innocent. But the way he said it is perfect. Be infants in evil. But when it comes to your thinking, I want you to be mature. Now I want to remind you, in First Corinthians 12, 1 and 2, He already referenced their spiritual gullibility. So he's calling them back and says, I want you to think carefully about what I'm saying here. And then he says this, Tongues, the genuine gift, is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. In verse 21, he's quoting Isaiah 28, 11 through 12. In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. The reference here to Isaiah is talking about foreigners who speak in a language, a human language, that Israel doesn't understand. And God is saying, this is how you're going to know that you're being judged. These foreigners are going to come and take you captive. Men from the outside will come to you, and you're not going to know their language. They're foreigners, and they are here to take you into captivity. We saw that happen in Israel. And even then, Israel was not going to listen. So Paul uses this passage indicating judgment to make his point. We see the same thing in Deuteronomy 28... In this chapter, God has given the law to Israel. And he says, if you will obey my law, here's the blessings that will accompany it. But then if you disobey my law, here are the curses that will come with it. And in verses 49 through 50, here's one of the curses for disobedience. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation Who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young? So, the sign of judgment for Israel, and it's all over the Old Testament, is there will be a foreign nation that comes in speaking a language you do not understand. This is what Paul quotes in talking about tongues. Israel would have known this. Well, they also would have known Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 29 where God promises to pour out His Spirit on all flesh in the last days. This is the passage that Peter quotes in Acts chapter 2. When the Spirit comes down, they begin speaking in tongues, and then Peter points to Joel and says this is what Joel was referring to. Pentecost was a sign of judgment announcing that judgment is coming. The last days are coming. And for those who were not found in Christ, there will be judgment. That was the purpose. It was intended to call Israel, unbelieving Israel, back to the Lord. Now, why does all this matter? Because Paul wants the Corinthians to view the gift the same way. He wants them to understand, to be mature in their thinking. Tongues is not divine communion with God through the Spirit that bypasses the intellect. It is a sign of judgment to those who are in rebellion against God. And that's why he continues in verse 22, Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Because it's a sign for unbelievers, it is not intended for use in the church. That's why he says previously, In the church, I would rather speak with five intelligible words. Now, Paul makes an exception if there's an interpreter. We'll look at that more next week, but that's an exception. So then, contrary to tongues, for unbelievers, for judgment, then there's prophecy. Now, prophecy, he says, is not for unbelievers, but for believers, And this might be confusing, because if you keep reading, you see, well, wait a minute. You just said it's better for people to prophesy in the church, and then an unbeliever will enter and then fall on his face and say, well, God's among you. So what does it mean that it's not for unbelievers here? It's the exact same thing with tongues. Tongues is intended for unbelievers, where prophecy is intended for believers. And because the church is a gathering of believers, prophecy should be exercised in your midst. If you'll remember from last week, prophecy is simply speaking forth the truth of God as one is led by God to do so. And it's intended to build up believers as they gather in the church. So Paul says, I would rather you engage in prophecy because it actually accomplishes the purpose of the church. And this leads to our third point this morning. The church gathering is intended for believers The church gathering is intended for believers. That is what church is. It is the gathering together of the body of Christ in a single place to worship the Lord and to build one another up. We build one another up in love into the image of Christ. Church is not primarily about evangelism. Church is not primarily about drawing people in. Now both of those things will happen. But that is not the purpose. Church is where believers gather to hear from the Lord and then be changed. And in the process of that happening, as non-believers are in their midst, they are seeing the power of God. And like Paul reiterates... They, the secrets of their hearts are disclosed and they fall on their face and they worship God. So this does not mean that there won't be unbelievers. Nor does it mean that we shouldn't try to get unbelievers into our gathering. If you look at verse 23 here, what's implicit here is that unbelievers are going to enter, even in Paul's time, if the whole church comes together and then unbelievers enter so it's understood that that's going to happen that's a good thing the church is open anybody can come in and hear and see we have nothing to hide or to be ashamed of they can come and see what God is doing in the midst of his people therefore prophecy is what should be taking place proclaiming the truth of God for the people of God because that is what's going to build up the church And then when unbelievers enter, what happens? If the church is doing what the church is supposed to do, building one another up through spiritual gifts, the unbeliever will see God working in the midst of the church. One of the reasons that people don't see God working in the church is because we've stopped being the church when we gather as the church. Think about it. In our attempt to try to reach people... We water down what the church is to make it appealing. Then when they come in, they're not able to see the church in action because we've changed it trying to reach them. We've shot ourselves in the foot. We've gotten away from what the Lord has called us to do. The church has lost its wonder in the world. I think with good motivation... I had I had good intentions but good intentions aren't enough The church is not designed around unbelievers but unbelievers can come in and hear from the Lord and come to faith in Christ when the church emphasizes Rational ministry to one another through prophecy, through the preaching of God's word, through selfless service and building one another up. Do you know what all this is? It's a picture of the gospel. God desires for the church to be a picture of the gospel for the world. God speaks to our hearts through his word. We are led to believe his word that Jesus is the Son of God. He took upon himself the sins of the world. He hung on a cross in the place of sinners so that all who turned to him in repentance and faith might be forgiven of their sin and saved from the power of sin. And as we are saved out of the world, we are saved into the body of Christ, into the global church which we express here in this church. And when we are saved into the church, our lives are no longer about us. We have died, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is a picture of the gospel that we are called to live out in the church. It is not about me. When we function this way, not only will the world hear the message of the gospel in our gatherings, but they will see it being lived out in our midst. And when they see it, that is when they will begin to believe it. Why don't they believe it? Because they do not see it now. They don't see it. They don't see a church self-sacrificially coming together to serve. They see a church that attacks one another and can't wait to just get out and tell everybody how much they're frustrated with their church. It's no wonder the world looks at us and says, I don't see what the big deal is. Where's the power of God that you talk about? That's because the church has stopped being the church. Now, this is a broad brushstroke, But it is vital for us to wrestle with and grapple with. Now, you may be thinking, well, but Garrett, isn't this making church inward? You've been talking about the scriptures teach that church is outward focused. Doesn't the church gathering being for believers, doesn't that turn us inward? And isn't that what we're not supposed to do? Actually, no. This is not inwardness because each individual is not acting inwardly but outwardly. It's one-anotherness. So yes, the emphasis is on the good of the church. But that's still an outward focus because each individual in the church is looking outside of self upon one another. And this one anotherness invites outsiders to come in and to behold and to become part of the one anotherness through faith in Christ. Paul's point is that the world, when it comes into the church, should visibly see how God is working in the midst of that church. And then at the end of verse 25, we see this this result. He will fall on his face and worship God and declare, God is really among you. That's right. That does not happen when people walk into the church and hear chaos or see disorder. Hearing in the Corinthians churches, case strange tongues and sounds everywhere without explanation that doesn't serve the purpose we may not have strange tongues and sounds here but we have other things that the world comes in and looks at and says i don't get it that doesn't make sense and not in a good way in the first instance that will lead them to say well this is crazy we're out of here this doesn't make sense Well, this isn't going to happen when we try to attract them either. That will lead them astray to say, well, the church is just like the world. You talk like the world, you act like the world, I don't see what the big deal is. I might as well get a country club membership. If the church will focus on building up one another, when unbelievers enter, they will see God working in his power through the church. So no, the church isn't inwardly asking, what's in it for me? The church points one another to Christ, letting Him do a work that only He can do in changing our hearts. When we hear God's Word, He changes our hearts and makes us into the image of Christ through one another. And when an unbeliever enters, the unbeliever is exposed to God's Word that he or she might turn to Christ and be saved. I want to end with a quote here from a book by Tom Rainer. He's the CEO, was the CEO of Lifeway for over a decade. He isn't anymore. Now he's the CEO of a ministry called Church Answers, I think. He's written numerous books, most of them revolving around the church. And I think that maybe y'all studied a book by him. I am a church member some time ago, maybe when Rick was here, possibly. So same guy wrote that book. He wrote a book called autopsy of a deceased church so he specialized in church revitalization churches that were dying that would pay him to come in and try to diagnose why is our church dying when it used to thrive and he has a number of churches that he noticed that they died and he goes back and looks at them and says what commonalities can we see in these churches to try to figure out what, is, what causes this So in many years of doing that, he compared them. He compiled it into a book. It's a short read. It's really good. Uh, If you want uh, an example, you come to my office. I'll show you what it looks like. We can get some for you. But in chapter 7, he talks about the preference-driven church. And in this chapter, he points to 1 Corinthians 12, which we've been looking at, and he says this. A church, by definition, is a body of believers who function For the greater good of the congregation. In essence, when church members increasingly demand their own preferences, the church is steadily not becoming the church. It's therefore neither surprising nor unexpected, at least from an observer's point of view, when the church closes its doors. The church really died before then because its members refused to be the church. So here's my call for us this morning, church. May we be the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we worship God affectionately and according to his word, the truth. May we cast our gaze outward and commit to one another to build one another up with the truth of the gospel, to serve one another, to consider one another, so that we might look more like Christ who does this for us. So that unbelievers will enter and not think, well, this is a cool place. But they might enter in and see God working and say, I'm missing something. That they might open their hearts and hear the word of the gospel and recognize their need for forgiveness and be saved. This is what God has called us to. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you, even though your word sometimes is hard. We thank you that you love us enough to speak the truth to us, as you did to the Corinthian church. As they were fighting and struggling, dealing with inward desires, and you spoke powerfully to them, to steer the ship, so to speak, Lord, of their church. We pray that you would continue that same work in our midst. Those things within us, Lord, that are tempting us to draw our attention away from one another and away from you and to place it upon self. Would you break down these altars for these idols? Would you bring conviction? Lord, to us, your people, so that we might change, looking more like you, being a testimony to the gospel as it works in our midst, transforming us into the image of Christ. Lord, we thank you that you have brought those into our midst this morning that are not believers. We thank you that you have spoken your word just as much to them as you have to us. Lord, would you so open their hearts that they might see their need for the Savior. Lord, we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, for his honor and glory. Amen.